So I'm actually going to read an article and comment on it. An article that I find extremely, extremely relevant to what's going on today. And, and it's relevant. Um, it's basically about fraud. And this is from um, the Atlas Society. I actually don't even know who wrote it. Um, but um, they're, they're, um, they're going to be looking at, you know, um, Ayn Rand's philosophy and, you know, explaining fraud through their, um, um, yeah. But anyways, I think that most people don't understand fraud. They don't understand what it is. Um, they, um, they have this, this, um, they, they think it's wrong, right? They probably think it's a crime, but they don't, I don't think that they can pick out an instance of it, right? An instance of fraud in the real world, in the modern world, and, and just label this fraud. I mean, we have a hard time enough, um, understanding a very specific type of fraud, which is actually a Ponzi scheme, which a lot of people call crypto and Bitcoin as, as a Ponzi scheme. And I guess it's just easier to, to call it, to call it that. But, um, um, I've dissected before my thoughts on, on the word Ponzi, why it's not a really good, good way to describe crypto, um, on a, on a fundamental detailed level, uh, because, um, it ignores sort of the fraud part of a Ponzi and all Ponzi's have fraud contained, um, inside of them. So I'm just going to go ahead and start reading it. Um, this might be a little bit boring, but, um, I think it's just important to expose people to the article. Uh, link the article if you just prefer to read it, but I, I will be um, commenting throughout the article. Okay, so it starts, it's understanding force and fraud. An inquiry into fraud, or indeed into direct physical coercion, must begin with an inquiry into rights. For neither fraud nor coercion can be distinguished perceptually from legitimate activities. An assault and an old-fashioned bar-knuckled boxing match look much the same, but the former is coercion and the latter not because in the latter case there exists prior agreements because the part because, between the parties. Likewise, the pattern of deceit that goes into a con and the pattern of deceit that goes in, into a surprise party look much the same, but the former is fraud and the latter not because in the latter case, the deceit is not intended to work to the deceived person's harm. Um, two facts serve as the basis for individual rights. Now, this is a section on individual rights. Unlike the members of some species, termites apparently, man is metaphysically capable of living as an individual. Specifically, he is capable of using the individual attribute of reason to guide his product production of values. Ethologically, however, the man lives in, a, in stable species such as the orangutan. For millennia, it was believed that these two facts conflicted and that as one was emphasized, the other must give way. The discovery that the very opposite is true, that society flourishes to the extent its members survive metaphysically as individuals, was the discovery that motivated the recognition of individual rights. For rights are the principles that define what a man must do sorry, what a man must be free to do, what he must not be stopped from doing if he is to live metaphysically as an individual in a social context. What, may, what must a man be free to do? The argument that justifies rights shows that the one all-encompassing right is the right to live as an individual within one's society 
since the essence of individual human living is action based on reason, man possesses the right to liberty. He must be free to take actions based on his judgment. Since the purpose of rights is specifically to preserve man's rights to live as an individual within society, it is useful to stress that men have a right to pursue their happiness and inherently individualistic purpose. Lastly, since all human action involves material objects, if only a place to stand, men must be free to create goods for themselves, to employ these goods, to trade them or destroy them. They must have property rights. Next section, violation of rights. The paragraphs above speak loosely of what a person must be free to do, what he must not be stopped from doing. The obvious question is, in what ways might a person's freedom to do these things be curtailed? When shall we declare that he has been stopped from doing the things he has a right to do? Ayn Rand wrote, to violate man's rights means to compel him to act against his own judgment or to expropriate his values. Basically, there is only one way to do it, by the use of physical force. Man's rights, the virtue of selfishness, I guess. That's a quote from there. Uh, insofar as his dictum rules out such economic crimes as the restraint of trade and the attempt to monopolize, it is valuable identification. But in Rand's mind, the scope of force was not limited to the blatantly physical, shooting a man, tying him up, burning his house. She, like most people, considered force to include threats of force, pointing a gun at a person and declaring your money or your life. And she termed indirect force such actions as unilateral breaches of contract, fraud, extortion. Uh, she also endorsed the libel and slander laws. Okay. Um, here are, so th this is the heart of the article. Um, here are two of Rand's statements on indirect force. A unilateral breach of contract involves an indirect use of physical force. It consists, in essence, of one man receiving the material values, goods, or services of another, then refusing to pay for them and thus keeping them by force, by mere physical possession, not by right, i.e. keeping them without the consent of the owner. Let me concrete, concrete, I can't say this word, um, Anyway, let's move on. Uh, so he gives an example. A canary ships a hundred cartoons of canned goods to a wholesaler, along with an invoice. But the wholesaler arbitrarily declares he will not pay the invoice. According to Rand, the canned goods are then being held without consent of the owner. That is the person who runs the canary. Here's Rand's second statement. Fraud involves a similar indirect use of force. It consists of obtaining material values without their owner's consent under false pretenses or false promises. Again, a canary ships a hundred cartons of goods to a wholesaler along with an invoice, but the wholesaler's depot is a front. The goods are quickly reloaded onto trucks and the wholesaler skips town, never having intended to pay the invoice. According to Rand, the canned goods have been obtained without the owner's consent. Okay, second section, the definition of fraud. In order to determine where Rand's analysis is correct, let us begin by defining fraud. Its genius, genus, I suggest, is simply the act of obtaining goods or services from another. Fraud is thus in the same broad category as trade, as the forcible seizure of another's goods and as the obtaining of goods and services by threats of force. What are the facts of reality that give rise to differentiate fraud? The first, I believe, is that fraud proceeds by inducement rather than by direct co physical coercion. Secondly, it proceeds by 
inducements based on the promise of gain. Thirdly, its inducements of gain involve a consensus, conscious and harmful deception of the person who conveys the goods or performs the services. Thus, fraud may be distinguished in turn from malicious deceit that harms but does not attempt to obtain goods or services. For instance, giving a motorist false directions. From the seizure of goods by direct force, from the acquisition of goods through threat, and from the acquisition of goods through trade. Its definition is the act of obtaining goods or services from another through an inducement of gain that involves a conscious and harmful deception of the person who conveys the goods or performs, performs the service. Um, last section, frauds and rights. Several questions may now be asked. Is fraud in direct, indirect force? And if so, does it violate rights? Is fraud not indirect force and therefore not a violation of rights? Is fraud indirect force but not violation of rights? Is fraud not indirect force but a non-forcible violation of rights? Ayn Rand endorsed the first proposition as we saw and the case for her position seems strong. That fraud is an indirect force and, and violates rights. After all, traded items are not usually exchanged simultaneously. Even when a merchant hands me a quart of milk and I go to hand him a dollar, I may suddenly pull back the dollar and run out of the store without paying. If so, I have clearly violated the merchant's property rights, his ability to control his goods by using force of the most direct sort, the physical seizure of his goods. How different is that, in essence, from walking out of the store with a quart of milk because I have established an account with him under a false name and address? So I wasn't really the best person at reading this. I apologize. Um, I haven't read it in a while. But uh, yeah, I, I, I felt like reading it because I need to refresh myself in order to sort of comment on it. But maybe I should just comment on it without reading, re, re, reading it, actually. Um, but I think that this, this is um, a pretty good definition of, of fraud that stems from from individual rights. And basically the way I like to think of it is, is, um, is physical, physical theft. So we all, we all understand somebody just stealing something out of a store you can also have theft when you commit fraud, because fraud is where you're, where the, the person who's defrauding another is gaining something, um, by, by basically, um, can de deceiving someone into handing something over, right? Um, under a false print pretense, under a false statement, under a false promise. Uh, so you've 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 basically received the good or service, um, and but you've done so. They would you know if if the person knew everything. Um, not that no, that's not a good way to describe it. Um, the person only handed it over under a false pretense, right? So this can involve like. In my opinion, this can involve just false false statements. So I like to compare it to crypto. Maybe this is a better way to, to explain it. Um, so if you say that Bitcoin is money or that it's going to go to a million dollars, somebody might believe you um, and, and buy a bunch of Bitcoin, right? Say it's 60,000 is when they bought. And now the price has dropped. And say, um, say that you... Are a holder of Bitcoin. So anyone buying Bitcoin, right, is good for you because um, say you buy Bitcoin at 10,000, right? So, so, so you're up, right? So you've gotten a lot of people to, to buy Bitcoin off of your, your statement of it's going to a million dollars or it's money or it's digital gold or whatever they like to say. 
Um, someone has believed you, has been induced to buy, and um, they've experienced some some loss or some harm. Now, if you were able to sell at the top, you, the, somebody could argue that you defrauded them. Um, now, this is an example that's, that some people are going to point out lots of nuances here. They're going to say, well, how do you know that they, they listen to him? Why, does, why, why is it that does he even have a duty to this person? Does this person have a duty? Like, why, why, why can't you just say buyer beware? They should go do their own research. Um, yeah, there's all of these little things you can nitpick. But the basic idea is that um, there's a deception going on, that this person wouldn't have otherwise bought Bitcoin if they hadn't listened to this person's ideas about Bitcoin. Um, and the, the, the real matter is how you tell if this is really fraud or not, in my opinion, is assessing the truthy nature of the claims. So is Bitcoin going to go to a million? Right. Well, this is sort of a prediction. Um, and people give people the benefit of the doubt usually when they make price predictions. But um, but there's certain things that the Bitcoiners say currently, like Bitcoin is money that could be could be um, really disproved. I mean. Some people are using Bitcoin in transactions, but it's not the common medium of exchange. And that is what is required really to become money. So I think that that, that could be considered a misstatement. Um, and then describing Bitcoin as never being able to change. Like a lot of people say, well, the 21 million is permanent. This is the amount of Bitcoin that will in theory ever exist, but this is human code. And, and if, if you could, if you went to a judge and the judge said, well, under what circumstances could this be changed? And then they'd start asking questions. Well, um, you know, it's written by humans who has the keys to the code, right? And in theory, if a lot of people, you know, Bitcoin is consensus run, they, they, they always talk about this. So that means that if a lot of people vote for it, right, if they want to increase the supply to 22 million, um, then in theory, it could be, it could be changed, right? The code could be changed. So this idea that it can never be changed, I think is just a material misstatement, um, that the Bitcoiners make. And I think that they do need to be very careful about exactly what they say, um, because, you know, not everybody who talks about Bitcoin is going to be um, hit with fraud charges because fraud, fraud involves um, multiple people. So two people, you cannot just say Bitcoin's a fraud. Bitcoin's a token, right? Fraud is between people. So there has to be a person um, defrauding another person, right? So I don't think that you can even call Bitcoin itself a Ponzi. You can say someone is um, committing fraud against someone else. Now, the, the hard part about Bitcoin is that a lot of people trade Bitcoin based off of, they sort of ride the coattails of, um, oh, you know, off of um, Bitcoin pumpers. So Bitcoin pumpers, they do all the hard work, right? They do all the hard work. They're, they're, they're there to pump, right? And a lot of people uh, will just trade off of that and say, yeah, I'm getting on the bandwagon. So, but the pumper, he's, he's, he's putting himself out there. Like he's at risk because anyone who listens to him and if he's got a public, you know, he's public on Twitter, he's got, you know, millions of followers. I'm thinking like a sailor or something. Uh, sailor even runs classes. He even has a duty to shareholders because he has a fiduciary duty. Um, he, he's really putting himself out there. Like it, you know, it, my, my, my predictions of the Bitcoiners that are going to be charged with fraud, pretty much, you know, he's at the top. <laughs> but also people like Adan Held, right, who, who constantly say hodl, right? He's constantly telling people to hold. 
and I've brought this topic up before, I think this is a form of fraud because if, if you can prove that, that Dan Held has ever sold Bitcoin in his past, but yet he's telling other people to hold, hold on for dear life. People claim never sell Bitcoin. Um, they, these kinds of, of statements, I think are definitely misstatements. And if you can, de- if you, it's not that you have to prove just a misstatement, you, which is the truthy nature of it. You also have to prove that Dan Held profited, right? So if he has ever sold Bitcoin at a profit, technically, you know, he's in trouble because he's telling other people directly online, right? And in person talking, he's like a talking head. He's at all these conferences. He's very public. Um, and if he's telling other people to hodl, and if you can prove, you know, if you just take him to court, you sue him and you say, hey, look, I think he sold Bitcoin at one point in his life. Uh, and if he, if he has, right? Or if he sold Bitcoin recently, um, he's nailed. He is nailed. I mean, I don't think he realizes that he's committed fraud. <laughs> and I think the Bitcoiners better really lawyer up, um, especially the ones that are very public, you know, the pumpers, the one that say all these crazy things about Bitcoin. We sort of let them get away with it now. That's because there aren't, you know, there's probably not a whole lot of people in the Bitcoin community that have, have, have a lot of losses on their books yet. But I guarantee you, um, you know, as price goes down, there's more people with losses and they're going to be looking for somebody to blame, right? For someone to blame. And a lot of people probably think that, well, Bitcoin's not a security, so this saves us. You can have fraud outside um, whether something is labeled a security or not. There's a specific type of fraud that falls in, into the securities markets. It's called securities fraud. <laughs> but um, there's also just this thing called fraud and, um, and that's a crime and you don't have to, you don't have to be selling security, uh, to, to commit any kind of type of fraud. Um, the basic example is, you know, if you're a business owner, if you're selling something to someone and you, um, <clears throat> you advertise it in a way that's untrue, um, you could be, uh, sued for fraud. Right. And then, so there's private lawsuits that can, can come at you. Right. So you'll just basically have to pay money. Right. If, if, if they find that you did commit fraud, but then there's, uh, because it's a crime, a prosecutor, a criminal prosecutor could come after you and they could charge you with fraud and put you in jail. So there's two, um, there's two scenarios that, that you have to worry about if you are committing uh, fraud. <laughs> um, so yeah, so like CNBC has all these pumpers on Bitcoin pumpers. And they make all these crazy claims. Um, and, and people think, well, it's okay because it's not a security. It's decentralized. It's not a problem, right? How, they can't go after all of us. That's true in a way. You probably aren't going to go after everybody who talks about Bitcoin in a way that's untrue, but you can definitely go after the big players. And they all tend to be, they all tend to be recurring people that we all see. Dan Held, Safe Dean, um, you know, uh, uh, sailor, um, who else? I don't know. Pomp. Um, there's all these people, there's all these, you know, uh, uh all these podcast hosts, Stefan Levera. I mean, then you can go down the line of Bitcoin Twitter people that are very popular and basically just pick and pick a name out of a hat, read their past tweets. You know, people claiming that Bitcoin is money, people claiming it's going to go to a million people claiming it's going to replace the dollar. Um, all of these things could be taken and used against them. 
and if if these people have made money, uh, they might be very well made to to give it all back. Uh, and if you know if some politicians, some um, people are very upset at what the Bitcoiners have done in the crypto industry in general, um, I could see public backlash and you know prosecuting something as a crime that really is up to the prosecutor, right? So it's sort of a political thing, right? We're not really prosecuting criminals right now because it's political. They could be prosecuted, right, for theft, you know, for theft under, I don't know, $500 or something, but but they're not being prosecuted. But they could be. It just depends on the political wins, right? So if, if public backlash goes against crypto, Bitcoin in general, a lot of people lost money and they elect people um, to to actually bring charges against these Bitcoiners, that could very well happen. Now, it's not likely to happen. I, I actually predict more private um, civil cases against the Bitcoin pumpers. But I think they're definitely coming. And, you know, it just, I hope these Bitcoin pumpers right now are being paid to pump because, I mean, I'm sure that they are, right? They're making bank, right, just to pump. Just to have a Bitcoin, pump, you know, pro podcast. They're being paid to do this. They're making millions a year, I'm sure. You know, um, and this doesn't include their Bitcoin gains, but they're being paid to do this. So uh, they're going to have the money to pay out claims. The problem is, is that anybody could say, yeah, I listened to Sailor on CNBC. He defrauded me. Uh, you're going to have to prove if you're a victim that, you know, you maybe were. This is what I suggest. I suggest anybody go sign up for his class because there's a record of that. There's a trail. Go buy his stock. Go buy like a little bit of MicroStrategy. He has a duty to you, right, as a shareholder. So you go do those two things. You sign up for his class. You actually take it, um, and you you become a shareholder of MicroStrategy. You know, Sailor's nailed because um, <laughs> you can say, yeah, I took his class. I took Savedine's class. I took so-and-so's class. I took Pomp's class. I learned about Bitcoin. This is, you know, he was instrumental in inducing me into Bitcoin or Dan Held was in instrumental and getting me into HODL and never sell Bitcoin, you know? And if you can just, if you go to a court of law to say, hey, look, I think Dan Held sold Bitcoin. He told me not to. The court will go look at Dan Held's bank statements and see if he ever sold Bitcoin, number one. See if they've ever, see if he's actually up on his taxes, because you can look at that, you know, from the bank statement. And then also, so, but basically just prove, did you ever sell Bitcoin, Dan Held? And if you have, basically, we caught you in a lie. Because you're telling other people to hodl, but you yourself are not. So you're you're benefiting off of saying hodl. You've 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 made these gains, but other people have lost because they've listened to your advice. So because they didn't sell, right? Because they didn't sell when they were up, and now Bitcoin's down. So uh, that's just the point I wanted to make. And this article, um, again, it, I didn't really read it that well, but I think that every Bitcoiner should to understand that fraud is technically a crime. And it's just like theft. It's just done uh, through trickery and deception. And this is sort of just a warning, right, to to all the Bitcoin pumpers who are making misstatements. You know, and some of them, they might say, well, making a prediction. Well, you need to be very clear that you're making a prediction, that Bitcoin might one day replace the dollar or it might do this. But you have no evidence to say that it's going to. You have no evidence to say it's being used as money today. So what, what, you know, you need to be a little bit more cautious, you know, in your statements. You need to be like 95% sure that you are, are correct, you know, or else 
you have a very good chance, you know, of being sued and having to basically give up all of your gains, you know, that you've made in, in Bitcoin.